You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, still somewhat sunny December day. Sparkling clear this morning with frost all over everything on my farm. It was actually quite beautiful. We've had frost every morning for the last week. And the temperature right now, as we are recording this on December 13th, 2023, at least at my nearest weather station, is 50 degrees, going up to a high today, they say, of 61 degrees and sunny. Partly cloudy tonight. Then patchy frost again. The, the morning temperatures that they're showing have been 33, 34, 35, which is cold enough for there to be frost on surfaces, but not really cold enough to injure plants. My coleus on my front porch still looks great. That's my cold weather indicator plant. The canary in the coal mine, you might say. The day of the broadcast, Thursday, there will be areas of frost and partly sunny, going up to 60 degrees. Thursday night, mostly cloudy. We've got a change in the weather, folks, and this is the, the first one that they're really confident of, it seems, so far this season. 37 degrees will be the low Thursday night because of the cloud cover, so no frost on Friday morning. Partly sunny Friday, 59 degrees. Partly cloudy Friday night, 37 degrees. Those are very close to our average temperature for this time of year, just so you know, if you don't happen to be from this area or if you're new to this area, we're running pretty typical temperatures right now. Saturday, areas of frost, and then a slight chance of showers going up to a sunny day, 62 degrees. But the chance of showers will be increasing as we get into Saturday night, 42 degrees because of the cloud cover uh, Saturday night. And Sunday, the weather service has gone out on a limb here and says, rain likely. All right. It's Mainly, winter. Yay. Yes, it is. Almost, almost actually official winter, but not quite. Rain likely, mainly after 10 a.m., mostly cloudy with a high near 55. Sunday night, rain. Just says rain, mostly cloudy, of course, with a low around 47, so 55 to 47. Monday, rain, mostly cloudy with a high near 56. Monday night, rain likely, mostly cloudy with a low around 49. And Tuesday, rain likely, mostly cloudy with a high near 57. What is so happening that, here? Don, is that one storm that's just hovering over us? Well, the Weather Service exactly answers that question, Lois. They say it's a series of Pacific storms progged through Sunday into Wednesday, bringing periods of rain, mountain snow, and gusty wind. Snow levels will be at about 6,500 feet Sunday, dropping to 5,500 feet by Wednesday. Liquid storm total using the old weather service jargon, through midweek looks around one to two inches in the valley, one and a half to four plus inches in the foothill and mountain. So a series of storms, each giving us about half an inch. And all told, it's going to be an inch and a half or two inches, or it could be as much as that, shall we say, depending on exactly where they hit. But this is kind of the first significant all at once rain that's going to finally soak in and penetrate to more than a foot of depth each week on my day off i go out to plant a tree i think that's a good thing everyone should do that on their day off go plant a tree and i, I go out to a part of the farm that i'm planting that's new newly planted with woody plants shall we say and i go and see how dig how deep down i can dig based on the previous 
week's rain. So far, with the small storms we've had that have been penetrating a few inches of water each time, I can dig easily eight to 12 inches, depending on where I am on the property and what the previous irrigation status was. And then I usually fill the hole so I can dig deeper and wider. I don't think I'll be needing to fill the hole after this next series of storms. We finally have gotten to the point where moisture will be penetrating just from rainfall deeper than a foot and spreading why, out. Why would, why would you fill the hole if you just dug it? Fill it with water. Sorry, I didn't say oh. what I filled it with. Yes. <laughs> good good question. Like, Thank okay you. There. <laughs> yes, I fill it back up because I'm angry. No, I fill it with water and I let it soak uh -huh. in. Usually when I do that, since the soil below was really quite dry, the next day I can go out and go ahead and finish up digging and plant that tree. Something I learned years ago from, from an old tree planter was he would always dig the hole halfway, fill it with water, and then wait and then come back and, and finish the job. As landscapers, we couldn't do that because you can't go out to the customer's yard dig holes, fill them, and then come back the next day. That doesn't really, you know, that's just not a very efficient use of time. But I do that frequently if I'm planting in a new area where I haven't been irrigating. Uh, I will do that to make sure there's adequate moisture below and beyond the roots. You can accomplish the same thing just by watering very thoroughly after planting. His comment to me was it makes sure you don't, that you don't end up, end up with those air pockets that cause settling. I make sure not to end up with air pockets that cause settling, but it's a good practice if you happen to have the time to do it and you're planting into soil that's pretty dry. That's a digression, but the point being, we'll finally have enough rain. You shouldn't have to worry about that. We're actually getting to the point where nature will probably take care of the watering of your new plant. Once you've planted it, watered to settle the soil, you probably won't need to water again until March, very likely, you know, if we have anything close to no normal or average rainfall here. Okay, so I always was told, I mean, I, I, I have not had a nursery or, or, or run a crew or any of that stuff like you did, but I was always told that before you go to plant something, you go out there uh, two days ahead of time, you put a hose with a dribble on it, wherever it is you want the thing to go, and just let it dribble in for a while. And that way you've, you've got enough moisture to dig a hole. I think it's the same idea. Yeah. It's just... You know, this was the homeowner kind of version. Well, we often, when we were landscape contractors, if we were planting any time, we would obviously, like landscapers, we'd plant right on through the summer and fall. And it was not uncommon for us to get out to a property that hadn't been irrigated and have to reschedule the job because it had to be irrigated. So we took to either requesting or sending someone out or whatever to do a good soaking ahead of time. If you're new to this area, you, as you probably have learned if you've lived here for a year now, we get basically no rainfall from about May 1 through the end of October. And even through into the month of November, we're not getting enough to make a significant difference. So if you are doing large scale landscaping, I mean, I've watched people take pickaxes in dry soil and plant, and that's really not optimal. Better would be to pre-soak the soil. And what you were saying you did is something we would often request the homeowner do before we got there, oftentimes to no avail, but it was always, all, you know, the intention was there. So uh, that was a minor digression there. Uh, KDRT is, community radio we rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs if you like what you hear head on over to kdrt.org and click on the support button and while you're over there you will find all kinds of other great programming we always like to feature at least one of the other shows here and one long-running program bill buchanan has been doing davisville for if you, knew the area, if you don't know the area that was the original name of what we now call Davis. Davisville program focuses on individuals in the area, timely topics that are regionally appropriate. And I want to mention this one because it's the December 11th show. And he's mentioning someone I've known for a very long time. He interviewed Bruce Gallaudet. Bruce, Bruce. 
Bruce Gallaudet, a longtime prolific writer about sports in Davis for the Davis Enterprise. His wife was editor of the Enterprise for a very long time. He has or had retired from the news organization twice. Well, he's back. He's recently returned for the second time. He's officially now a sports correspondent for the Davis Enterprise on today's Davisville, December 11th, which you can click on directly by going to kdrt.org. The topics include why he's back how he's working within the limits imposed by a publication that's a fraction of its former size, what people miss when they dismiss sports stories as uninteresting. There's a great deal of flavor in sports, says Bruce Gallaudet, and I believe he's the person to introduce you to it. If you aren't familiar with local sports and all the stuff that goes on in this very active community, Davisville, December 11th, 2023 edition, interviews Bruce Gallaudet. So you were talking about the weather and the fact that we're finally going to get a rainstorm. Yeah. We haven't we haven't had that much. And there's still a lot of leaves hanging on the trees that aren't aren't growing. They aren't green, but right. they're still hanging on there. And this rainstorm will probably wash them down. And I have a question from our mailbag. So Gaynor writes, hi, you two. I have lots of birch and Chinese maple leaves on the ground in my backyard. I have learned the benefit of leaving leaves on the ground. I do remove them from the concrete and stepping stone areas. What about leaves on plants like succulents that are planted in the ground or bulbine that are currently smothered? I have the urge to remove those leaves since I feel like those plants will rot if I don't. What's the scoop? That's exactly what we do. Uh, Of course, we have a garden center with large trees all around, some of which we planted for shade and others are on our neighbor's property. And they all start coming down in late October and through November. And one of the things we do actually on a daily basis at our shop, one, we, of course, rake or blow them off the paths for safety because they can become slippery. So that's important to move the leaves to where they'll be in contact with soil. So they'll actually give the benefit by breaking down, reincorporating into the soil. We also go over the succulents with a light leaf blower, which is a very handy way to do it. You can get battery operated ones if you don't want to use a gas powered or or full on electric one. You don't go full throttle. You don't need to. You can go at a modest blowing speed, if you will. And we get the leaves out of there. And you're exactly right. If leaves accumulate in the the crowns and axles of the leaves and the, the the rosettes of different succulents and then we get rain those leaves will mold and that in itself would not necessarily be a problem but botrytis is a common problem in nurseries beginning on decaying vegetation and sometimes moving into healthy vegetation so we also take the leaves off of pansies and violas and flowering things that are nearby where it might cause a problem just in terms of the retail quality it actually can be a real problem with succulents Uh, if it's down in there and smothering them over and then it gets wet and then we warm up again rot can get in the biggest risk to succulents and some cactus here in the sacramento valley here in usda zone 9 sunset zone 14 is moisture followed by slightly warmer weather leading to rot, bacterial rot getting in. Bacterial soft rot is the enemy of succulents. It is the thing that causes them to just collapse in on themselves and and they're at that point completely gone. Um, Yes, I strongly recommend hand pulling them out if that's practical, blowing them out. This is one use for a leaf blower that many people find is just easier to handle with a leaf blower because while it's still dry conditions, you can get out there and they just flop right, floosh right out as you go over the the displays or the the plantings of succulents. Um, Other than that, leaves on the ground are one of the best things you can do. Uh, We want everybody, if possible, to take the leaves that come off of your trees and put them on bare soil 
under those trees or around the shrubs or whatever. It's not something you'd necessarily leave on your lawn or on perennial ground covers or things like that, because if they're big leaves, such as, let's say, plane tree, sycamore, mulberry, they can shade out the plant below to the point that it will die out. So you want to get them off of plants where they might cause some harm. But on dirt, one of the best things that you can put on the soil going into the rainy season. I used to live under fruitless mulberry trees at one house, massive leaf drop. I mean, I could put two feet of leaves anywhere in the yard I wanted to. And we were in a community locally that does not have street pickup of leaves, nor do they even have organic dumpsters in those days. If you want to get rid of your leaves, you put them in a truck and you took them to the dump, which I didn't feel like doing. So we would rake up this massive amount of mulberry leaves. If you've ever looked at a mulberry leaf, it's thick, it doesn't break down quickly, but it does break down. We would take those, haul them all from the front yard to the backyard and bury any exposed soil. The shrubs nearby got a foot of leaves under them. The part of the vegetable garden we weren't planting in, we would bury with two feet of leaves if we had that many. Um, if we already had plants in them, we would carefully mulch around them with leaves so that we weren't burying the little winter vegetables, but we would go ahead and mulch all around them because that won't harm something like winter vegetables. I'm not concerned about them as long as you don't smother them. And with anything close to normal rainfall, you would watch those leaves immediately start to break down, sort of pack themselves down and disintegrate. And by spring, there was just a bit of a residue on the surface. They had gone all the way back into the soil. So it's a very beneficial thing to do. I realize some of you may have homeowners associations that don't allow this in your front yard. And so I don't know what I would do in that situation, but probably just move them all to the backyard, any bare soil area. And I do understand whenever I say this, you know, leave the leaves, don't send them to the landfill. Some of you live in small property parcels where you have big trees. You've got way too much leaf and not big enough yard. So those go out in the street or they go in the organic bin as the city would prefer you to do. If you have any bare soil, there's no harm from putting leaves on the soil. And people often get concerned about this type of leaf or that type of leaf. So far as we know, even leaves of things like walnuts are not harmful to existing plants. They may be harmful to seedlings as they start to germinate, seeds as they start to germinate. We know they may suppress germination of seeds. Well. That could include your winter weeds, so that would be fine. But as far as we know, you don't get any, in my observation, there's really no problem even with a whole lot of walnut leaves underneath shrubs and established plants like that. One other question that comes up is what about things like coral bells or, or perennials that are just at the ground level during the winter, a chrysanthemum, for example, you've cut it back, you've cut all the flowering part off, all you have left is foliage at ground level, little buds getting ready to go for the next year. Most of those come from places where they get buried in leaves every fall and where the leaves break down during the winter and they push through in the spring. So I'm unconcerned about that. But if there's something delicate, something very special, something that you're concerned about, yes, you might want to go around and pull them, just pull them away from that little rosette or crown of a plant that is just going through the winter as in its bud or early growth stage down at ground level. I've stopped doing that years ago because I've never found a plant where it was a problem for them to be smothered in the winter with leaves if their basic growth cycle was spring, summer, fall. But you might have something that you're concerned about, so you might take an effort on those. Basically, though, leaves in contact with soil is one of the best things you can do. Leaves sitting on succulents, not so great. Don keeps talking about the leaf blower. 
Mm -hmm. Well, if this is the only use you have for a leaf blower, you're probably not going to want to go out and buy one. <laughs> so here's an alternative from Lois. Hair dryer? You know that hair dryer that's <laughs> in the cupboard that you haven't used for 20 years? Well, it probably still works. You put an extension cord on that thing, drag it outside, and just don't put it on hot. Put it on just <laughs> right, right. It works just fine. <laughs> and once again, we were talking earlier about uh, battery-operated pruners. Well, battery-operated leaf blowers are out there. In fact, the same company that you would buy your battery-operated pruner, the same battery will probably go on a leaf blower that they sell. You don't need the kind of intensity of leaf blowing. I'm not going to get into that debate, by the way. You can, don't send me anything about leaf blowers. I've heard it all. But the, you don't need, personally, as a home gardener, that power that those leaf blowers that those guys out in the street are using have i mean that's like 90 mile an hour wind that they're pushing putting on plants actually it's not great for some plants but you don't need that in fact i strongly suggest when you're using leaf blowers in these situations like with your succulents throttle it back you, you just need to basically get in there and blast them out from where they're falling down in 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 between the leaves down into the rosette and increasing the risk of rot uh, succulents and cactus are very easy to grow here in the valley but one thing and i just had this conversation with someone who moved here from a drier coastal area you do need to know which ones are cold hardy and which ones are not and it's a huge group of plants just because something is succulent doesn't mean it has anything necessarily in common with another plant that's succulent it's merely an adaptation to xeric conditions and those are very widely distributed in the around the around the world in terms of winter temperatures some of them jade plants for example are just on the edge of being hardy here so you find the right microclimate for it by just pulling it up against the house that's all you need to do under an overhang is all you need some of the aloes some of the euphorbias others are completely hardy and so you can look them up one by one you can ask at garden centers like ours when we sell them we'll tell you whether it's cold hardy or not or unfortunately you can just you know buy them and find out by trial and error but some of them are a little tender and right now is when they start to show injury. We've been walking around our own display because we have lots of interesting and unusual succulents that we're willing to bring in, even though we don't necessarily know completely how hardy they are, because so many new hybrids of aloes and things have come on the market. We monitor them and you learn to recognize the early signs of cold injury. And even better, if you have any question about it, just move it closer to the house, get it under an overhang where it won't get rained on because it's the combination of cold and rain in the case of succulents that usually leads to problems if they happen to be a little bit, a little bit marginal here. So talking about Instagram, uh, Don's Instagram place, and by the way, to find it, go to Instagram and search for Don Shore. You'll come up with it. When I look at your site and there's all those beautiful pictures and I come across something like a while back, you had one that was the pecans that were in a green husk. They weren't ripe yet. And now today you've got one that are pecans that are brown and they look they look like they're ready to harvest tell me about harvesting pecans don well i would note first that lois is from the midwest and so she pronounces it pecan yeah. and i have other customers like pronounce it high. or pecan pecan or, <laughs> or, or pecan. I always said pecans with the emphasis on the on, not the P, but that's, uh, those are all perfectly acceptable pronunciations for this wonderful American native nut, native to the southeastern and, and uh, southeastern United States into Texas up into the northern tier southern states, I guess. Uh, not totally cold hardy up into the mid-Atlantic and New England. People back there would know better. And there are hardy varieties as well. Um, yes, if they don't detach themselves from the hull 
they will hang up there in the tree, which in my case makes them easier to get because once a, once a pecan on my property hits the ground, it disappears faster than you can imagine. The ground squirrels think this is their major winter harvest time on my farm. Um, pecans are very popular with all kinds of animals. It's interesting, the major predation on my pecans, I was trying to figure out years ago where they were all going and why I wasn't seeing them on the ground was actually scrub jays. Uh, blue really? jays and scrub jays they will yes in our area it's scrub jays and i was reading about this going why am i losing so many nuts these are, ground squirrels don't climb trees you know it wasn't and i didn't have tree squirrels at that time they may climb a little way but they ain't going to go up into a 40 foot pecan tree to get to get nuts and they were disappearing and i thought could it be rats no it wasn't rat damage i could tell by looking at what was on the ground it turns out that jays are major crop problem with pecans. In the southeastern United States, I assume it's whatever their native blue jay is. Uh, I don't know the, the birds back there. Here it's our scrub jay, right? That'd be what we would have here. And I watched them finally. I just sat out there one warm day in November, late November, early December, and watched the scrub jays flying through my pecan orchard landing, knocking pecans down to the ground, going down to the ground, breaking them open, eating as much as they preferred. And then I made a point of going out to look at where that nut had been uh, the day before and every trace of it was completely gone. So they're working in tandem. I'm telling you folks, the jays and the squirrels are working together now. <laughs> <laughs> they're cooperating. And I realized I had a major problem on my hands if I was actually going to try and make a living selling pecans. There is no easy answer to that. However, I have, I have an answer. Take, take and on, on the bottom tier of your tree, where the, where the bottom branches are, hang hammocks of, <laughs> of material that is has holes in it that are smaller than recons. Right. So the scrub jays can come and they can knock it off, but it won't hit the ground. Right. That's one thought. Right. Uh, uh, so what they, they do... You know. when, Georgia is apparently a pretty major pecan producing state. And in Georgia, the farmers were talking about this in one group that I went into. And uh, what they would do is just shake the trees early. They would just go in as early as they reasonably could and shake them, even if the hulls were still attached to the nut, because the processors were willing to just let them dry and then the hulls would split there. The processing, I mean, they literally would go and shake them before they were ready to come down. I, look, I get plenty of pecans. That's no problem. I have 85 trees, so it's not like I'm going to have a shortage of them. But uh, we can talk about growing pecans here, which question did come up as well. But this is um, a picture of what they look like as we get into December. I just took this picture yesterday, day before, if you're listening to the show on the live broadcast. And uh, they're still hanging on there in many cases. So what I find is the ones I get to harvest are the ones that are low enough that the jays don't like to come down for them and high enough that the ground squirrels can't get at them. So I get the middle belt, <laughs> the squirrels get what's on the ground and the scrub jays get the rest. We did have a question from someone who wanted to know, hey, can I grow pecan trees here? Sure. Let me tell you about it. He can they're, really... huge. they're huge. Yes, they're, they're huge. You're not going to grow. It's not a little backyard plum tree. Right. No, this is all. this is the comment. Uh, yes, they grow just fine here. There actually are commercial pecan growers in the valley, and um, I was hoping to become one at one time. That's why I have 85 trees. They uh, they grow very well. They're very tall. The reason I knew they would grow well is when we bought this place of the handful of trees that were on it was a 50, 60 foot tall pecan tree that the original owner had planted probably in the 1930s, which is still here. And it's taller than all my walnuts. Uh, so they're, they look very much like a walnut. I can tell you the seedlings are nearly impossible to tell apart. They look very much like a walnut. They grow like a walnut at first, but then they're more upright a little more open habit, more sunlight comes through, which could make them good to garden under. But it's a very, very large tree. The major 
drawback to pecans as a backyard or front yard tree is they always get aphids. So they don't affect the yield or the quality of the nuts. But to a backyard gardener, I can tell you walking under in my, my roughly one acre pecan orchard in the summer, it's very sticky under there all summer long. Doesn't bother me because that's all that's there, whatever is growing naturally under them and the pecan trees. But I have had customers who have had big mature pecan trees in their backyards and they do find that constant sticky drip from the aphids all summer long to be quite, quite annoying. Also, the branch angles of pecans are not great naturally. Um, I have found that many of the trees have not needed a lot of corrective training or pruning, but many do, and they get narrow branch angles, so they do have a tendency to split. So if you do have the space for a pecan and you do decide to plant a couple or one, depending on how, what you have room for, train the young trees carefully and be aware that you're planting a tree that will probably get 50 to 60 feet tall. So watch those branch angles on the young tree. This is one case foreshadowing a, a subsequent, an, an upcoming conversation at a, a show perhaps closer to January, where we would use central leader training. We always talk about vase training of fruit trees and modified central leader training. Doesn't matter how tall your pecan gets, you're not picking the nuts off the tree. So you just let it grow like a natural tree and it can be quite beautiful. So you do adopt central leader training. That does mean you still need to select the branch placement by removing those that are too close together or that are too close on the trunk, you know, like fanning right out from each other on the trunk. Look at the branch angles, very narrow branch angles will split, very wide branch angles can split. So you want 30 to 45 degree branch angle. In other words, train it properly as if it's gonna be a big shade tree, because it is, and it's gonna be a big shade tree with a lot of aphids. They also are very strongly alternate bearing. You get years where you have almost none, followed by years where you have lots and lots of them, like mandarins and apricots are famous for their alternate bearing pattern. When we planted our orchard, I used to joke to my kids, they were gonna to have to go to college in alternate years. That's <laughs> <laughs> the income from the pecans was gonna pay for it. Now, if you're thinking of farming pecans real quickly, no one will harvest them. It's that simple. Nobody will harvest them. The harvest crews are gone. They've done their job. They've done the almonds. They've done the walnuts. They're gone. There's only one company as I, that I'm aware of that goes up and down California to the small number of growers in the state that do pecans. He does all of them, minimum 20 acres. So if you're thinking of pecans, you better think big. And uh, you're just not going to get anyone to harvest them. So growing them as a commercial crop is very, very challenging, I can tell you. One other issue is that many pecans are not self-fertile. So choose carefully. But if you go to the average garden center, uh, there's one in Dixon that sells pecan trees, very likely they will sell you Western Schley, it's S-C-H-L-E-Y. That one is self-fruitful. It's a very big, very high quality pecan. So if you're going to plant one pecan tree, it's one of a few that is self-fruitful and very self-fertile and very reliable. If you happen to just grab a pecan randomly from a place that has a bunch of varieties, you might get one that isn't, and you would have to have another one to cross-pollinate it, and they have to cross-pollinate by wind, not bees or anything like that. So unless you have room for a couple, plant Western Schley. If you plant Western Schley, be aware of how big it gets and be aware of the almost guaranteed situation with the aphid drip throughout much of the summer. Well, that was a nutty discussion. <laughs> They're pretty drought tolerant. This is another point I would make since I got this question from the same guy. They're native to the southeast, so how much water do they need? Well, if you're a commercial grower, they water them a lot. But I have found they don't need much water for a home gardener. They're as drought tolerant as a walnut, which is, you know, the tree will survive drought extremely well. So I would not rigor, I would make sure they get watered to establishment. Other than that, they don't have any special requirement, in spite of the fact that they do come from the southeastern United States. 
All right. So our next question comes from Melissa. Greetings. A short while ago, you gave me some suggestions for low drought tolerant hedge and border. I ended up going with Tucrium Camadris. Very good. Camadris is with, yeah. The dwarf dwarf germander is the common name. Not sure that helps, but. And could not be happier with how it looks. Thank you so much. Attached are my before and after pictures that I wanted to share. I am now tackling another area of my garden and could use your wisdom. I have a narrow garden strip area that shares a wall with my neighbor's garage. The space faces northeast. Planted in there are two giant Fuyu persimmon trees about nine years old, which I had planned to espalier. This year, I got a disappointingly single one. (laughs) One. Persimmon fruit from Was it good? <laughs> I seem to be the only one in my family that enjoys this fruit. Yes. I am tempted to pull out both persimmon trees and replace them with a single mandarin. Don's talks about mandarins have us excited about the gold nugget. Mm. We already have a satsuma that we cherish. I think I would espalier it because of the narrow space. I like the look of espalier. Espelier, espelier, espelier. Well, all, all the all of those are fine. All those words. <laughs> yes. I already have an apple espelier on the opposite wall. My question to you is: Can you offer any wisdom for the gardener that doesn't want to feel so gilly, guilty pulling up a fruit? <laughs> Could the persimmon trees be salvaged so I don't feel so guilty? And what would be the best time to plant a mandarin tree? And she lives in Glendale, California. Okay, Glendale. So a little, little warmer, milder than here. Um, well, I don't. I wouldn't feel guilty about pulling up a second persimmon. The reason is that um, when you do get a good year, you're going to have really more fruit than you know what to do with. A, a persimmon trees do strongly alternate bear. Uh, there are a lot of factors in why it didn't fruit this year. Very likely, just rain during the bloom season. Even with persimmons, the mo- one of the most common fruit tree conversations we've been having this season with people is why didn't my fruit tree fruit why didn't it produce there's a whole lot of reasons a fruit tree might not fruit but in the winter of 2023 the main reason was that we had 40 days of rain in the first 80 days of the year and there's a high likelihood that it just rained right on through the bloom period of that tree there can also be other stress factors that that might have been at play but uh, most likely that's all it is but um i'm looking at the pictures here and it looks as though one of the trees has a beautiful red fall color, the one on the left, and the one on the right doesn't. So oh, you know, those one question. And then the other one is, she said it's a giant fuyu. Does that mean that this tree is going to get huge? I see it's only planted in a three foot wide space. Oh, first of all, I just realized you and I are both looking at these pictures wrong. The uh, the germander is not planted underneath the persimmons. That's planted under something else that looks like perhaps a crepe myrtle. The the persimmons are the top picture, and uh, oh. they're 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 pretty small for how many years have they been in the ground nine nine so they haven't grown as much as i would expect a persimmon should be growing no oh, two to three feet a year and it looks like these might have had some drought stress issues or, or something that has caused them not to grow quite so quickly so that might be why you haven't gotten that much fruit on them I would think one would be enough for almost any household, even trained as an espalier, which will reduce the fruit yield in a good year. You may get as many as 100, and uh, you might even want to do some fruit thinning if you don't want that kind of number. 
you don't typically have to thin persimmons in a heavy fruit year because they have strong wood. But just the amount you're talking about in a in a year where you have a lot of fruit, that would be probably be more than than somebody really would have a use for, especially if you're the only one in your household that uses them. Try this on your family next time you do get a good crop. Slice them and run them through a dehydrator. And that certainly intensifies the flavor. It makes them almost like candy. And then they have a very distinctive flavor. And the fuyu is the one to do that with because the hachia would be too goopy for that. That's the one that people use for cooking. So try that. Try them in a dehydrator. That might make your family more enthusiastic about them. But I think two is more than most people need. Giant fuyu refers to the shape and size of the fruit. So it's not actually fuyu, but it's shaped like it. It's one of the flattened ones that tells you that it's a non-astringent variety. So you can eat them off the tree as soon as they turn color. You don't have to wait till they're soft and squishy like you have to with hachia. And it's just a larger fruit. One of my customers, uh, oh, the tree, uh, my, my, my regular fuyu persimmon is 30 feet tall and 20 feet across. And could, I, could I top this tree mm-hmm. at, at six feet and, and yeah. it would survive? Yes, you can prune a persimmon any way you want at the risk of reducing yield, which is not a huge issue for most people. I once went into a backyard where a gentleman who was a very avid fruit grower was pruning his persimmon almost exactly like he was pruning his peaches and keeping them, which looked weird to me because that was just a totally unnatural growth habit for a persimmon. But it looked just like a peach tree, basically. He had about 12 by 12 and uh, all the fruit, the reason he did it, he headed it out when it was young and he kept heading it out to keep all the fruiting branches going out more horizontally and rather than up and uh, it made it possible for him to pick every one of those one two three hundred fuyu persimmons just with a small stepladder which can be done you can also as she's doing here train it flat against the wall and just let it get taller and taller and eventually have an espaliered or hedge-like persimmon against the wall i would take the other one out without the slightest feeling of guilt because you're putting in a wonderful tree to replace that everybody in your family will like which is the gold nugget Mandarin. And uh, what we like about the gold nugget, it is the last of the really high quality mandarins to ripen. And they hold well on the tree, retaining, in fact, increasing their sugar content as you get into the summer. So not only do you have the, you know, the nice acid sweet balance when you first start picking them March or April, depending on where you are, you can keep picking those right on into May and June. And the fruit quality is still very good. Whereas most other citrus, by the time we get into warm weather, become uninteresting. Their, their flavor, they just get mildly sweet and they lose the acidity. And so they're just not that interesting. The exception being Valencia orange, which is grown for juice. But we do have this one Mandarin, Gold Nugget, which coupled with your Satsuma, you can start picking Satsumas as early as late November at the higher elevations, December in interior and places like Glendale. And you have other varieties. You can pick January, February, and then March, April rolls around. There's that Gold Nugget and you're picking that. We wouldn't really call the way you will be pruning it aspiring because you're probably not going to take branches and train them out flat. You're just going to prune it essentially like a hedge. And that can be done very readily. Again, you reduce your yield per square foot somewhat by doing that. But a gold nugget mandarin will give you plenty of fruit starting three to four years in and could be trained essentially as a hedge all as high as you want it to go on the side of the of the, the wall there. The worst that would happen if someone stops doing that is it'll start spreading out over the path and uh, you'll, you know, you'll have fruit hanging over the, the sidewalk there. But it would be a great choice for that because you'd have in coastal areas getting extra heat onto mandarins is actually pretty important. I know Glendale isn't you know, literally like coastal San Diego, where my father was trying to grow a mandarin. He had a problem. They grew, they flowered, they fruited, they didn't turn color, and they didn't get sweet because he didn't have the heat 
he was right on the coast of San Diego, you know, fog every morning till one in the afternoon, 70 degrees was a hot day. <laughs> he just didn't get the heat input to get the flavor quality. So having a little extra heat there because of the building and being a little further inland in Glendale, you'll probably get the quality you're after and you'll be able to pick right on in into the summer. And I've had people with gold nugget telling me they're they're fine even as late as August or September, which would be pretty amazing for a Mandarin. So I would think taking out the second persimmon, getting a little nitrogen on that tree in the spring to try and get a couple feet of growth on it. Consider deeper watering. My guess is maybe you're not watering it deeply enough. It doesn't look unhealthy, but it probably should be bigger by now if it's been in the ground that long. And my guess is your yield will increase sufficiently on the one tree that you won't feel the need for the second one. So we have a question here from Nigel, and uh, it says, my friend lives in Sunnyvale, California, and has a tangelo citrus tree in a quasi-shady location that has recently developed what looks a lot, well, looks like a lot of disease. We were curious if you had any pointers on what might be causing this or how to better diagnose the issue. I'm attaching two photos, and yeah. if there's a chance you can cover this in an upcoming podcast, I'd be greatly appreciative and would certainly hear it. All right, Nigel, thank you for the photos. They're very, very specific yes very see good if i can describe this so the first photo is of leaves and the leaves have black schmutz all over <laughs> no but i mean it's like it's not smut smut is a particular it's thing a disease, but yes. it looks sort of like that so um it's a black specks um, if you were to take your finger and wipe it across that you'd come up with a really gross finger yeah. it's not liquidy it's oh. dry and then the second second picture what do you see there uh, the second picture oh that's sad it is the immature fruit the fruit is covered in this black smutty stuff and and moldy stuff and the stems are totally covered in white looks like mold yeah uh, it's oh it's gross Oh, these are fascinating. Uh, well, I, I was in plant pathology class and the pref professor kept referring to what he called city mold, you know, like a city mold. And I kept listening to him going, what is he saying? City mold. He was trying to say sooty mold. Oh, sooty. Sooty mold. Yeah. Yes, I go, what is a city mold he's talking about? Is this a mold that you only get in cities? S-O-O-T-Y, sooty mold is the official term for the black stuff that grows on the sticky residue from anything that's related to aphids, mealybugs, or scale. So anywhere you see sooty mold on the leaves, which you can, as Lois notes, rub off with your thumb and you'll, it'll be sticky. Uh, the, the leaf will be sticky, tacky, and then this stuff is growing on the surface, but it does rub off. That's the good news. Uh, that is just growing on the fecal, let's not, it's not fecal, the, the honeydew drip from things that are sucking the, the juices of the tree higher up. So up above those leaves, you've got either aphids, mealybugs, or scale. Those are all the three major ones that cause this drip that then causes the mold. The mold itself is not harmful to the plant, except that it's putting a black layer over the leaf, which reduces photosynthesis. So that obviously is not great. The second picture is excellent because this narrows it down a little bit. Um, it's not an aphid, most likely, although a fun thing to do when you see this white frothy looking stuff that looks like a mold is to take a, a long pointy thing and poke around in there. And sometimes you can actually tease out the mealybugs specifically, or the young scale, or even the older scale insects that are causing the drip below. So this tree is heavily infested with 
not aphids in this particular case, I don't think, because I can't get in close enough to look. There are aphids and scale, and particularly cottony cushion scale is a well-known pest of citrus. And it's it, the adult form is an armored-looking thing that looks it has a white ridged background. Look up cottony cushion scale, and you'll find all kinds of information about this pest that came into California oh, probably 100 years ago. There are natural predators out there usually doing a pretty good job of controlling it, but in some cases that the population can get to the point where the, the sooty mold itself is harming the tree by reducing photosynthesis. The sooty mold is growing on a sticky stuff that is water soluble. So this is where you get out that pressure washer we love to talk about so much and just go at that tree with a pressure washer and know you will not blast off the leaves or the fruit if you, I, you know, don't necessarily try it full throttle. Use some judgment on this, but a pressure washer is something that you people use to clean cars with. It'll be more effective than a hose nozzle, although we could start with a hose nozzle and just keep going until all that black stuff is coming off the leaves because that'll be healthier for the leaf. And in the process, you'll also blast off any aphids mealybugs or scale that are present. And I have actually gotten complete control of scale on a citrus when I had a bad infestation on a one fairly isolated tree by borrowing my son's pressure washer, went over it for about five, 10 minutes. I was only six or eight inches away from the plant with the pressure washer. And I was using it at full throttle because I realized it wasn't really harming the plant. No leaves were coming off, nothing. You weren't, you weren't defoliating it this way. I got done, I couldn't find any scale visible so I waited a month and I went back. And if you're anywhere in California, you should probably check in April or May for a reinfestation because that's when the young crawler stages of the scale insects come out and go at it again. But I went back a month later, went over that tree once more very thoroughly. I had found a very small number of the scale present and I never had scale on that tree again because they, I, I knocked down the population to the point that the natural beneficial insects, the predators that, that will actually feed on scale would come along and take care of them and keep it under control. So you can just use, just literally physically remove them. Yes, you can spray. You can spray with an oil spray and oil sprays will smother everything, including beneficials and the insects if you get really good coverage and the leaves, which is fine as long as you don't do it on a day that's above, let's say, 85 degrees. But you don't have to do that. And I can tell you something about oil sprays. They're gross. I mean, they're, they're fine. They're useful in the garden. They're organic. They're safe. But you're going to cover everything with a nice, slightly oily layer that then becomes as sticky as what's on those leaves. And so it's not something that most homeowners really want to get into frequently. And they'll leave a residue on a lot of things. So if you spray any dormant spray of any kind in the winter, including the copper sprays and oil sprays, which are very popular with organic farmers and organic gardeners, cover up any furniture, cover any surfaces that you don't want to have that kind of spray residue on because it will, in both cases, copper and the oil will leave some residue on what you're spraying. I don't want you to bother with copper on this, just the oil if you're doing that. I just don't think it's necessary. You can knock them off mechanically with a good, strong blast of water. If you don't have a pressure washer, your hardware store sells the kind of hose attachment that we used to use in California for cleaning our driveways and things. There have been droughts. We're not allowed to use those anymore, but they still sell them. And you can get quite a bit of pressure with that as well. I suggest if you buy that little, I don't know, $10 gizmo, you also buy a little on-off thing to go on the end of the hose so that you don't have to run back to the hose to turn it off. You can turn it off or on or down or up or whatever you want to do. So have a control valve on your your jet stream nozzle is what we used to call them and go at it with that. But don't be concerned about a tree like a citrus with even a surprising velocity of water coming at it. You're not going to knock the leaves off and you will knock 
not only all of those little bad guys off, but you'll clean off the leaves as well. Fun thing to do to your whole yard. Have fun with it. Two things. One is he says you're not going to lock knock the leaves off, but you may well have yellow leaves on yeah. there that are just hanging on, and those will fall down because that's, they're dead. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's normal. It's normal. The yeah. other thing is uh, if if your citrus is taller than you are, um, getting to the top can be a real challenge, Don. So what do you do? I, It'd be hard to get complete control. You don't absolutely have to blast every one of them off. When you're washing off insects, we don't assume you're going to wash off 100% of the offending pest. I like to describe it as a population reset. Both <laughs> of these things, aphids in particular, but the others as well, have a period, a fairly narrow temperature range in which their population increases exponentially. Aphids, you've seen this on your roses, for example. The one winged one lands, she pops out 50 or so pregnant baby females a day. So it seems like, you know, at that rate, your entire yard will be filling up slowly with aphids until you're all drowning in them. But they don't do that. They don't, they increase very rapidly. And then beneficials come along in what I call a linear increase. And it's not exponential, but there's enough different kinds of beneficials like ladybugs and lace wings and leather wing beetles and so on that feed on aphids, to use the one example, uh, that they will catch up at some point and the population of the bad guys on your plant will come into some kind of equilibrium. If that equilibrium is fine with you, great. In some cases, it's not. Uh, crepe myrtles are a good example where the aphids are there all summer long now. We've got this particular crepe myrtle aphid. There's lots of beneficials on the tree, but people with a crepe myrtle over their patio, that sticky stuff is still coming down. So they become a nuisance pest that they want to manage somehow. Uh, you can just reset that exponential increase. And when you blast off a ladybug, it just shakes itself off and crawls right back up there. When you sh blast off an aphid, it's proboscis was in the plant and it stays there and the aphid blows off. So you've killed it. That's kind of gross, but don't think too much about it. And in the case of the scale insects, they can't crawl. So you've got, you know, you've got a bunch of these related insects. They're all in the same group in aphids, scale, mealybugs, which really once they've been shot off into oblivion, it literally is oblivion for them. There's a few left on there. Some of them are reproductive age. Some of them will reproduce. The population will start to build back up. But you now have generally a good population of beneficials to keep it under control. So you're resetting the bad guys to help the beneficials catch up. You don't have to get every single scale insect off of there. But if you ever have had scale on a tree, it'll probably start to reestablish, especially if you have ants in the area, because ants will carefully move scale from plant to plant. They like that sticky residue. They farm aphids and scale and mealybugs, and they take that sugary excretion back to their nests. And so you can often see ant trails going up into trees before you even notice the pest that's up there. Usually, not always, but usually when ants are going up into a tree, it's because there's an infestation of one of the types of pests that I just described. So knocking down the uh, the unpleasant pest is the first part. Washing off the tree is good to get that black stuff off the leaves. Oil would be fine if you want to do that, but generally I would suggest skipping that. Just use your, your high-velocity high sprayer and watch for ants because ants can bring the problem back. In my own property, I watch them go right along drip irrigation lines because mine are on the ground underneath the trees. I haven't, don't have them buried. They think that those drip lines are just little ant freeways. And you'll see there's scale up in that tree and you'll see the ants running down the drip line to the next tree. You can pretty well assume that within the season, the scale will be on both trees unless you've taken some action to deal with the ants. So ants are a big factor in this, but continuing to blast off the, the, predator, the pest itself is one of the simplest things you can do. And you won't hurt the plant. You can really get the plant nice and clean, get rid of the pests, and clean off all that black sooty, sooty mold.
Well, we have another question. Um, John writes, I had terrible leaf curl again on my independence nectarine. It has been in the ground some 25 plus years, and I'm thinking about replacing it with another peach, one more resistant to PLC. What's PLC? Peach leaf curl. Oh, thank you. Peach leaf curl. I read in David Wilson catalog that in the UK, they have a variety called Peregrine yeah. with pretty good fungal tolerance. Have you had any experience with this one? If not, what would you recommend? I'm thinking of a tree on a semi-dwarf rootstock. Okay, so there are several issues there. Uh, I have no experience with peregrine peach, but I did look it up. And yes, in the UK, it appears to be a popular white peach. White peaches have their own market. They're sweet and generally, in my opinion, milder flavored, at least the older white peaches. And they, in general, and they this from the description of this one, it seems to be in this category, rather soft textured. So a white peach picked right off the tree, eaten out there in the yard is an amazing experience. That's the only thing you can do with it. The very first peach tree we planted when we moved to the Sacramento Valley was a variety called Nectar. It had a huge white peach that was as the sweetest peach you've ever tasted. People love to say things like that, but it really pretty much was. It also was so soft and juicy that you just ate it out in the yard, then went in and washed your face and your hands because it was that kind of a peach. That was all we could do with it. You can't freeze it. You can't make pies with it. It's not that kind of a peach. And by the third year, it was producing three, 400 fruit. And we realized, you know, we'd rather have a more general purpose, yellow, firm textured peach than this. So we took it out and planted a good yellow peach. But white peaches do have their following. However, um, extension publications say the same thing. Master Gardeners mentioned this. There are three or four cultivars of peaches that are said to be resistant to peach leaf curl. Everybody had extremely high infection levels of peach leaf curl this year, 2023, because we had rainfall all through the leafing out period, and uh, that splashed the disease from the buds to the leaves and so on. It just kept going and going. Most people had anywhere from 80 to 100 percent leaf infection, and a lot of those leaves fell off. And when they fell off, obviously that weakens the tree. That's really the only concern I have with peach leaf curl in general. Where we are in the valley floor, uh, the way our temperatures go in the spring, peach leaf curl basically does not infect the blossoms. We had a listener at a higher elevation who su suspected in her case that it probably does. Further north, my guess is it does. To find a picture of leaf curl infected blossoms, I went online and I found them at sites like Rutgers University, which is in... New Jersey, right? Yes. <laughs> colder, colder in the spring, colder when they're blooming. The infection temperature for blossoms is lower than what we're usually at here by the time the trees flower. Infection for leaves is perfect. We get great leaf infection. Infection for blossoms rarely happens. I've never actually seen it. And all through the spring, as it was raining, I was walking out looking at all my peach blossoms that weren't going to get pollinated because it was raining and I monitored them very carefully and I could not find any sign of blossom infection. It was simply a lack of pollinators was the cause of your lack of yield this year, more than likely, depending, of course, a little bit on where you're listening. So there've always been uh, varieties like Indian Free, uh, which is a very fascinating peach that is rather resistant to peach leaf curl. My tree of my my four trees of Indian Free had maybe 10% leaf infection this year, uh, whereas all the other trees had you know 80, 90% leaf infection. So it's somewhat resistant. It's a unique fruit. 
Um, I wouldn't have it as the only peach in my property, but it fascinates people when it ripens. Very firm textured, unique flavor, very different. It's an heirloom peach variety from the southeastern United States. California curl-free frost or two that are on the market. When frost came on the market, the sales rep made a point of bringing us some fruit so we could see how it was. And the consensus at our nursery of these fully ripe frost peaches was on a scale of one to 10, I'd give them maybe a six. They were fine, they were okay. They were peaches and they didn't get leaf curl. They weren't as good by any stretch as Alberta or O'Henry or any of the others. And it doesn't, this is really simple. Peach leaf curl rarely affects the yield that, that, you know, that we've seen and certainly doesn't affect the quality of the fruit. It can affect the vigor of the tree by causing a lot of leaves to fall off. So that brings us to the next part. He wants it on a semi-dwarf root stock. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> My experience, and I'll be real, real blunt about this. I'm not a fan of the most common semi-dwarf root stock that's out there, citation. Lots of trees that I sell are on it because it is a very popular variety because that semi-dwarf phrase gives people a lot of ideas that they won't have to prune it or something. It means they're less vigorous. So my suggestion is instead of focusing on varieties that will resist leaf curl, since it has little effect on the yield, little effect on the fruit quality in our area, I suggest that you instead buy and grow vigorous trees that will outgrow the seasonal infection, which they almost always do very quickly if they're on a good rootstock like level. So my preference is a normal rootstock, prune the tree for size control, get the best variety for your area. And every now and then we'll have a year like 2023 when there's very significant amounts of peach leaf curl. Well, my trees on level dropped those leaves, grew right out, everything was fine. No, they didn't yield very well because it rained all through the bloom period, but the trees were fine. I have a couple on citation, I'll, somewhere I can probably find a picture that I took about May when leaf curl was done and the trees were outgrowing it. And side by side, the citation trees looked bad still and the trees on level and other rootstocks looked great. So I really think that a semi-dwarf rootstock is part of the problem and not part of the solution. And resistant varieties, sure, fine, if leaf curl really bothers you, or if you live in an area where leaf curl has an effect on yield, look for some of those, but be aware that they're not as good as an O'Henry, or an Alberta, or a Loring, or a Rio Oso Gem, and if you planted those four right there, you'd be in peach nirvana. So I would focus instead on proper pruning, proper watering, healthy tree, vigorous tree, not semi-dwarf, and I suspect leaf curl will be a minor concern for you. I had a funny question from someone. She goes, when is spring here? My answer is it depends on where you moved here from. Yeah. Iceland. Okay. Spring here is for you from Iceland. Figure mid-February. That's uh, probably what uh, what looks like spring in your, I don't know Iceland real well, but I'm guessing it's more like May there. But generally speaking, as we're talking, you know, we, we can talk about the phenology of spring, the calendar of spring and all that kind of thing. But our spring in the sense of the earliest daffodils and the, the trees blooming and feeling like spring is usually about Valentine's Day. And she was delighted by that because that's certainly not the case in Iceland. In, in, terms okay. of, in terms of the seasonality of garden activities and things like that, I generally figure our spring begins around Valentine's Day. We can have frost later than that, but uh, if you moved here from a much colder climate, it will certainly feel like spring when the first flowering plums are blooming, the almonds and the very first daffodils are up, and that's generally mid-February. Some of them as early as late January. But we have flowers all winter long. Yeah, I had the same question basically from someone who moved here from coastal Southern California. I said, well, uh, we actually have spring here. Congratulations. I mean, I grew a lot of those things in San Diego. I grew daffodils and things like that. 
seemed kind of odd, honestly. You know, if you ever watch uh, Steve Martin movies for like L.A. Story, he always features people walking across the street in L.A. with a Christmas tree over their shoulder, wearing shorts and flip flops. That's Southern California winter. And so spring is not really a defined thing down there. But as you get into the interior, we are cold enough. We have distinct enough seasons. We actually have winter, which ends, let's say, Valentine's Day. So, Don, it's December and uh, the end of 2023, but I see you've got your 2024 calendar out. Um, how are people going to get that? Well, it is something that we do print and sell at our nursery, Redwood Barn, but also for all of you who are looking for a gift idea and you're frugal, kids, this is for you. Go to redwoodbarn.com with permission. Um go to monthly calendar of activities right there on the home page this time i put it right on the home page you'll see click here for january click here for february click here for march each of those opens that month's printable page for the calendar so for a real cool gift for mom or dad you're going to burn through their color cartridge on their printer i suggest you go out and get the brightest white paper you can print out each one of those january february march all the way through december go ahead and click the cover line them up carefully, get a piece of ribbon, fold it over, staple it on, and you can hand them a 2024 calendar for the mere cost of one color cartridge. The calendar of activities at redwoodbarn.com, the things we talk about each week or every few weeks as we go through the show during the year, the pictures are on there, the activities you can do in that month, the things we would be harvesting at the Redwood Barn calendar there at redwoodbarn.com. Our free service to youth everywhere to simplify their holiday shopping. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore and Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California. Hey folks, here at KDRT, we'd like to thank each and every one of you who donated during our fall fundraiser. It's support from our listeners that keeps us on the air. If you haven't had a chance yet, please head on over to kdrt.org donate. We welcome contributions at whatever level you can afford. Let's keep this eclectic local programming coming and help to amplify it to the world. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to KDRT LP 95.7 FM from Davis, California.